X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I am Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Tuesday, October the 20th. As a grassroots station and one that's funded also by local small businesses, when our community hurts, we hurt. This is our fall fund drive. We need to raise essential funds to keep X-Ray live and alive. Radio is yours, and don't let anybody forget it. Please do donate today, 503-233-9729. That's 503-233-X-Ray. You can also go to our donation link at xray.fm slash donate. Or if you just go to the xray.fm main page, there's a blue donate button. It's easy that way too. X-Ray. Today, back in the day, October 20th, 1818, the Treaty of 1818 was signed, establishing much of the U.S.-Canada border along the 49th parallel. The pre-existing boundary relied on watersheds, but settlers believed the parallel would be easy to survey. The treaty also required the return of slaves living in the British territory whom the United States claimed ownership of. And today, back in the day, October 20th, 2004, jazz singer, bassist, and cornerstone of the Portland jazz scene, Marion Mayfield died. In the 1970s, Mayfield led jazz groups that performed at several Portland clubs, including the Prima Donna, the Jazz Quarry, and Village Jazz. She earned a bachelor's degree in teaching at the Portland State University, taught fifth grade at Glen Haven and at Jason Lee. And two months before her death, the Mount Hood Jazz Festival paid tribute to her performances by those inspired by her. Today we'll start with the Quick 6 News headlines and an interview with Desi Nicodemus, a candidate for Milwaukee, Oregon City Council position number three. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 local rundown. A major new management plan was approved for the Columbia River Gorge. Just the second time the plan has been updated in almost 30 years, 29 years actually, the plan is in place to protect the gorge and its wildlife from urban development and climate change. It'll expand protective buffers, limiting development around streams where salmon swim as distinct from where they walk around or run. That would cap the amount of land around streams that can be used for urban development. And construction of new homes in large-scale forest zones is prohibited to reduce the risk of fires. When would fires ever happen? The destruction of wetlands for development purposes also entirely prohibited. In a broader change, a new chapter was added to the plan acknowledging the history of systemic racism in the region. The new plan kickstarted the creation of a new diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative. Their goal is to diversify the Gorge Commission and make future decisions with racial justice in mind. Finally, the new plan requires the Gorge Commission adopt specific strategies to combat climate change. The new management plan has been a long time in the making. Funding has been an issue for the commission, making it hard for them to adopt new strategies. And the new protections owe a lot to grassroots organizers. Thousands of people wrote to the Gorge Commission and went to hearings, pushed for those new changes. Thank you to people who work on the public thing. Your daily dose of coronavirus data. On Monday, the Health Authority reported 266 new coronavirus cases and eight new deaths from the virus. It also brings the total number of cases in Oregon to 39,794 since the pandemic began. That means we'll probably pass 40,000 cases in Oregon by the next time we speak. And to put that in perspective, the planet just surpassed 40 million coronavirus cases yesterday. Infection rates are on the rise in the U.S. and in most of the Northern Hemisphere as we shift from summer to winter. 
Number of new cases also rising in Oregon, rising 24%, in fact, in the past two weeks. Social gatherings and in-person schooling are linked to those increases. The area of Eugene near the U of O has the highest per capita increase of new cases out of any zip code in the state. Washington State, total of 98,201 cases since the pandemic began and 2,239 deaths. And there's an outbreak in Seattle's Harborview Medical Center. Hospital officials think the virus was brought in by a staff member. Four patients and 10 staff members in the surgical unit have been infected. As a result, 30 staff members are being quarantined and patients have to stay in their rooms. Also now increased restrictions on visitors. One patient who tested positive has since passed away. People are getting their ballots. You might well have yours. By the way, apparently 29 million people in the United States have already voted. To put that in perspective, 138 Americans voted in the entire 2016 presidential election. If you don't have to get your calculator, the number of votes that have already been cast equals about 21, just slightly more than 21% of all the votes cast in 2016. That's a lot of early votes. I'm guessing we're going to have more than 150 million votes cast this year. That's a lot of votes. And one thing that's on the ballot for Oregonians is the state treasurer's race. Let's give a little bit about it. It's a rematch between Tobias Reed, the current state treasurer, and Jeff Goodman. Reed beat Goodman by just 2.3 percentage points in a tight race four years ago. Third-party candidates received more than 14% of the vote that year. This year, Chris Henry from the Independent Party and Michael Marsh of the Constitution Party are running. But one thing that's different about that dynamic is that last time around, Chris Telfer, a former Republican state senator, was also running as an independent. She got almost 10% of the vote. If you added up Goodman's and Telfer's votes, they would have beat Tobias Reed somewhat handily. But of course, that's fake math because that's not how it played out. And that doesn't mean it's going to play out anything like that this time. Another change in the dynamic, a Republican won the presidency in 2016. And it's not clear that that's going to happen again in 2020, meaning the landscape could be different. What does the state treasurer do? Well, the chief financial officer of the state, they manage billions in state investments. They're also one of the three members of the land board. What does the land board do? Well, they decide what the state's going to do with state lands. There's only three members. One of them is the secretary of state, and the other one's the governor. Tobias Reed touts as one of his biggest accomplishments, the implementation of the Oregon Saves Program, a retirement savings plan geared towards self-employed Oregonians, those who work at companies that don't have retirement plans. About 70,000 Oregonians now enrolled in that program. Reed's taken some heat for out-of-state contributions to his campaign. According to Orstar, that's the Secretary of State Campaign Finance website. Totally recommend it, by the way. Great way to understand who's giving to what campaigns. Reed has got almost $250,000 in campaign contributions from folks with businesses outside the United States. That's more than a third of the total money he's raised. Jeff Goodman is a financial analyst and investor. He criticizes Reed. Here's his quote. Tobias is nowhere to be found expressing what he thinks, but he has proclaimed himself the state's financial navigator. Goodman says Treasury needs to be more vocal about how to fund the unfunded public pension liability challenge. Unfunded PERS liability is around $24 billion before the pandemic and the recession. Goodman served in Lake Oswego City Council. Goodman is convinced he would have won in 2016, but for that campaign by former Republican State Senator Chris Telfer running as an independent. This time around, though, he is outfunded. He's raised nearly $200,000, but that's only about a third of what Tobias Reed has raised. Independent Chris Henry is running. It's the seventh consecutive election cycle. His name will be somewhere on Oregon's ballot, according to the Statesman Journal. He ran for treasurer four years ago, got almost 5% of the vote. And there is a Constitution Party candidate in the race, Michael Marsh. This is the fourth time he's run for treasurer. One time he almost got 1% of the vote. Another local election news. The Portland NAACP voted for Edie Mondanay to resign. His current term expires on November 21st. 
and the Portland Police Bureau will identify officers with three-digit numbers on their helmets during protests. Portland police have faced criticism for a lack of transparency during nightly protests. Some have been covering their names during protests to keep from having their identities and addresses discovered and shared on social media, getting doxxed. The city's new solution? Assign officers a three-digit number that will be displayed on their helmets during the protest. The hope is those identifying numbers will help the public hold officers accountable. That said, the identifying helmets won't be ready until November 15th after the election. Police Bureau also announced that five officers have been reassigned while they're under investigation for misconduct and use of force. And another protest news, the city will increase policing efforts on election night. That means more staffing and police presence on the streets on election night and an unspecified number of days after. For three nights after the 2016 election, Portland streets flooded with hundreds of people protesting Donald Trump's election. A number of businesses were damaged, 29 people were arrested, an angry driver also shot a protester, although the protesters survived. This time, Portland police will have much more prosecuting power than in the past. The presence of federal and state agents, as well as the deputation or deputization of the rapid response team, means it's much more likely to get a federal charge for a minor offense. The agency says it hopes they won't have to make many arrests, but they won't tolerate civil disobedience or assaultive behaviors. Protests have been going on for months now, with no sign of stopping anytime soon. Scientists are mourning the death of the Clark Glacier. Pour one out for that glacier. The Oregon Glaciers Institute's a new organization. It was founded just in May. Before that, there was no agency, local, state, federal, responsible for monitoring glacial health in Oregon. All summer, the OGI has been checking up on the state's glacial regions. Their findings weren't so heartening. On Sunday, three environmentalists climbed atop Central Oregon's South Sister Mountain to pay their respects to the Clark Glacier, which they recently declared dead. Glaciers are a lot like frozen rivers. They affect the quality, quantity, temperature, and timing of fresh water. So bad news for our glaciers means bad news for our flowing rivers. Glaciers contribute to irrigation water. That water grows our food, runs from our taps, and fills our lakes. They affect the creatures in our rivers, too. The erosion of glaciers should drive salmon who swim, they don't walk or run, and other fish to extinction. Glaciers also prevent wildfires by providing moisture to the soil. The soil... Maybe, maybe, maybe moisture to the soil, but I meant moisture to the soil. But wildfires, why do people keep talking about wildfires? I haven't heard about wildfires in several hours. OGI is helping build our knowledge of the state's glaciers so we can better protect them. At the glacier funeral, OGI founder Anders Carlson had this to say, and I'm quoting, We got to see ourselves as part of nature. Rather than trying to save it, by losing a glacier, I'm losing a part of myself. And some good news. A new program is going to provide one and a quarter million dollars of relief to Oregon artists. The Artist Relief Program has a good name for a program that provides relief to artists. And, you know, it's a program. It was created by the Oregon Arts Commission, awards grants ranging from $1,000 to $5,000 to artists who have experienced financial hardship due to the pandemic. It'll support literature, dance, music, theater, performance art, visual art, design arts, media arts. Hey, media arts. Applications are due by Tuesday, November 10th. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Another piece of good news, today is a wonderful day to become a member of X-Ray FM or to make a donation otherwise to xray.fm, clicking the blue donate button or calling 503-233-X-Ray. That's 503-233-9729. You can rewind it so you can hear it again, or I can just say 503-233-9729. And I'm going to say please six times quickly. 
please, 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 please go to xray.fm, click the blue donate button, and say that you like the local. We can say it on air, we can say it here, we'll say your name here, and get some support for this program. X-ray. Listen in to our interview with Desi Nicodemus. Desi is a fifth grade teacher and is running for Milwaukee, Oregon City Council Position 3. Desi is running to be the first black man elected to this position. X-Ray's Jefferson Smith talks with Desi about education, representation, and all the other issues facing Milwaukee now. Desi, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. What are the big issues facing Milwaukee? The big issues that I see are representation within city government, uh, housing affordability, uh, also and climate change are the big issues that, that I'm looking at. And a question I ask just about every candidate who comes in here, and thank you for being here. Who are you and why are you running? Uh, you know, so let me give you a little uh, history about myself. Um, I moved, my wife and I were teaching overseas. We were living in Brazil, moved back here. I got a job in North Clackamas School District, teaching in fourth and fifth grade. Uh, about my third year in, I was asked to participate in a grant that was sponsored by the Carnegie Foundation, the NEA, and the New Teacher Center, on uh, specifically focusing on recruitment and retention of teachers of color. Um, because our big thing was representation, you know, making sure that kids see themselves in their teachers, you know, like only <clears throat> out of the, you know, percentage of teachers in in this country, 2% are black men, and only 7% are black folks in general. So, you know, it's it's good to have folks who look like their students. Also, that's a good way to get kids to become teachers. And so I knew how important it was to make sure that there's representation in classrooms. And so last year, after the murder of George Floyd, I organized a Milwaukee Sit in Solidarity event where we had young students come out and share their stories with the white folks that live in Milwaukee. And uh, it was an overwhelming, I mean, I, I guess you could say success, but the folks here in Milwaukee really wanted more. They wanted to, to know more. They wanted to learn how to do more. And so after that, I was, a, <clears throat> I was approached and asked about running for city council. And, approached by uh, who? Uh, by Angel Falconer. Uh, she's also a, a city council member. She uh, approached me and asked me about doing it. And honestly, I was, I was tired. The work that I've been doing for three years in our school district supporting our you know, our kids of color and our teachers of color just taking its toll on me. And the more I thought about it, the more it made sense of what I was doing in our school district to make sure that there's representation. Well, there should also be representation. So, you know, here in Milwaukee, you know, uh, BIPOC voices haven't been heard and they've been left out of, of the, out of a lot of conversations for so long and those conversations often impact black and brown and our most vulnerable population. And so I thought, all right, this is the moment, this is the right moment, this is the right time. And I, you know, I decided to throw my hat in there because I also wanted to be an example to my students when we talk about civic duty, 
You know, I wanted to be an example for my son, you know, so he knows that, you know, we can, you, how do you make a difference? Local government, you start there and then you start to work your way up. So talk about working your way up. What do you see yourself doing? It sounds like this might not be the first thing or maybe the last thing you want to run for. Oh, (laughs) this is going to be the only thing. I'm a teacher at heart and, you know, I love being in the classroom and, you know, just this year I had a student, you know, we met through dry, you know, we were passing out backpacks and, you know, his mom had said to me, his, he's so, even though we're doing school online, his mom pulled up and said, he's so excited to have you as a teacher. He's never had a male teacher before. And, you know, this kid's in fifth grade and, uh, you know, he's a kid of color and he was just super excited to have me as a teacher. And if I left the classroom, I know I wouldn't be replaced by another me. You know, or I, I, not that I wouldn't want to be replaced by another me, or I wouldn't be replaced by another man of color. When you make the case about the importance for representation and teaching for students to see teachers who reflect their experience, say more about that. How does that manifest itself in the classroom? Have you seen the impact on having teacher representation and how that impacts the learning environment? Oh. You know, it, it, it's not just for our kids of color as well. You know, it's also for our white kids out there and being able to see somebody. So I'll, I'll speak to your, your question, sorry. Um, you know, it, it's just such a big thing. When I would go into schools and there were no black teachers there, kids, the black kids that would see me, their eyes would light up, they would ask me, who are you? Are you our new teacher here this year? What do you, you know, what are you doing? And they got so excited because it was finally somebody was in that building that had a shared experience that even if we didn't talk, we knew that we, we had some kind of connection. Uh, you know, I had two, two young boys uh, about two years ago. I, I loop. So I go from fourth grade to fifth grade with them, which every school should do, by the way. Um, And anyway, we had so much fun those two years that two of those boys left that classroom saying how they wanted to be a teacher. They wanted to, you know, be like me. And I'd always tell them, don't be like me, be yourself. But it was a huge, it was a huge thing for them to see me in that classroom every day, talking about like my travels, living all over the world and being able to do all these things because I was a teacher and they just got so excited. It really meant it, it means the world to kids and it really means the world to even white kids. It's it's not just I, I just don't want to harp on the, the idea that it's just for kids of color. But even our white kids need to see more folks of color in, um, you know, roles of power because it becomes normal then. You know what I mean? Switch gears back to the city council race you're embarked upon. Uh, this is the first thing you ever run for? Yeah, this is the first time I've ever run for anything. What? How do you like the experience? What do you find hard about it? It's an insider's game. If you don't know folks, it, it's hard. This has been one of the hardest things I've ever done. Uh, it's defi- definitely still a, a white insider's game. You have to know the right people to get you connected to do everything. Just from 
you know, I, I was, I'm lucky enough to have some folks that reached out to help me, uh, Celestina Tiva, Jacob Sherman, Paul Shepro. Um, I thought it all stopped when I got my 20 signatures to get on the ballot. Well, no, it doesn't stop there. You have to go out, you have to get your voter pamphlet statement ready. You have to get your endorsements to get into your vote into the voters pamphlet. You have to make sure that you get that turned in on time. And then there's the fundraising aspect. It is still very much like I keep saying an insider's game with, and without their help and knowing the system, I, I wouldn't have made it. I know I wouldn't have made it into the voter pamphlet uh, booklet. And so it's just, it's still like eye opening. And I just think about any other person of color, especially like, you know, a young black man or a young Hispanic person or Latin Latinx person, they would definitely need to have somebody who's done it and is willing to help them and volunteer their time to, to do this. Because this is really, I mean, I, I still am like, okay, what do I need to do now? And then, you know, my folks are telling me, this is what you need to do. These are your next steps. I would have no idea if it wasn't for them. Milwaukee and housing affordability. What does the city council need to do to address that? We know it's a statewide issue. We certainly know it's an issue in your neighbor, Portland. What does Milwaukee have to do? Um, We have to make sure, you know, once again, I'm going to talk about this from a uh, teacher's point of view because it's, I see the direct impacts of housing affordability in my classroom, you know? And so when kids and families don't have stable homes, uh, that affects a student's outcome. So when they do have stable homes, you're talking about, you know, at or at performing at or above grade level, uh, higher test scores, lower dropout rates. And so currently uh, Milwaukee, has a housing emergency. And we know it's a problem, like you said, it's a problem everywhere. You know, renters are being priced out. Uh, Young people and working class folks uh, aren't able to, or they're unable to afford to buy a house. Um, My wife's also a teacher in our school district and uh, one of her parents, the landlord gave him a 53 day eviction notice. You know, and so here's this, family with six kids all of these kids are online learning and she gets an eviction notice and then we're spending our time driving around milwaukee to see if we can find a house for them to to live in so anyway to get back to some some solutions you know we know <clears throat> some things we need to do as a city is working on adus cottage clusters and other thoughtfully uh denser developments and we know that uh, there have been some missteps with creation of density, and we need to look at some of those folks, some of those cities that made those missteps, and then we need to make sure that we're addressing uh, how, true housing affordability and not making those same mistakes and make sure that it's affordable for families. When you get that eviction notice or when the when you one of your would be constituents gets an eviction notice, what do you think the city should be doing? How long should an eviction moratorium last? What should we do when that eviction moratorium is lifted? Uh, do you, how do you see that playing out in the coming months? Uh, you know, I, 
honestly, I really I haven't had time to really delve into that. I, I think it's, you know, the eviction moratorium should go on for a while until there's a, a proper solution at, at the federal and state level for these things. And so, you know, it wouldn't be fair if I gave you a, like a half-baked answer right now, because, you know, part of my, fo like, my focus is split between teaching fifth grade online and then, you know, running for city council. And so I want to make sure that, you know, I well, at least you don't have to commute in between the two things, right? You just like turn off one computer, open up a new window. <laughs> you, <laughs> that, you know, just uh, that's everyone's reality right now. Right. And it's just, it's, it's an unfortunate thing. Cause trust me, we all want to be back in, in buildings and schools and stuff. So, you know, I would just want to make sure that Milwaukeeans voices are heard, you know, from our lifelong Milwaukeeans who, you know, have lived here who, <clears throat> excuse me, may be facing, you know, mortgage issues or even they've been longtime renters, you know, even to our newest community members. So, you know, I think it, it's going to take it's going to take the community and the city to, to, to figure that out. But once again, it's going to have to come down from, you know, the federal and state level to really get a, a solid grasp of what to do with uh Evictions. You list climate change is one of the top issues on your website. It's clearly, uh, it's clearly one of the top issues facing humanity. If you live in an island nation, you can imagine it feels uh, like a dire circumstance. What, though, should the Milwaukee City Council be doing about climate change? That is an excellent question. Um, you know, one of the, you know, with climate change, this is going to be something that, you know, my son is going to have to bear the brunt of the impact of, you know, so uh, we, first of all, we also, once again, I'm going to bring in the voice, the lens of uh, being a black person. These are conversations that are, we're usually left out of, you know, when it comes to uh, climate change, um, you know, urban canopy, Black and brown folks have always been left out of these kinds of conversations. So um, something that I would like to do is do more education for <clears throat> our folks in the community to understand just exactly what it means. Um, you know, as a government, you know, as city council, Milwaukee is lucky because they've already, they're in the process of working for a sustainable Milwaukee. Uh, my wife and I, when we do go back to school, uh, we both have e-bikes. Our son goes to the school we work at. So, you know, we try and e-bike and bike everywhere because once again, like I said, our kids are going to have to bear the brunt of this. But, you know, it's it's going to we're going to need governments and communities to work on both mitigation and prevention. And uh, city council's done strong work on this so far by setting city priorities. And uh, I look forward to carrying that work forward and carrying it forward, once again, through the lens of equity and making sure that all of our community members, from lifelong Milwaukeeans to new folks to our BIPOC community, are able to have their voices heard uh, in these issues. Well, I want to say, Desi Nicodemus, really appreciate having the chance to talk to you. Anything you want to say as a last word? I don't mean on your on this planet. I presumably you're going to have many years to offer humanity, but you know, last word on the show. Uh, you know, I would just ask that you know if people haven't made up their mind about who they're voting for, just to go and check out my website and see what I'm all about. 
Um, you know, once again, I'm very new to this uh, political world and political game. And, you know, uh, it gets it gets hard to be a self-promoter at times, you know, where you have to like, hey, go to, go to you know, Desi from Milwaukee, check it out and be able to see all these things. But you know, I just ask folks to go check out my website and, uh, you know, make an informed and uh, opinion and vote your conscience. Desi, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Be well. Thanks to Desi for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for giving your five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. Thanks to Desi for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing, giving your five-star review, and donating a million dollars to this podcast, or some other amount. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-ray, 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 X-ray.